Cyril, Anthea and Robert return to find that the burglar has made friends with the cow and the cats. They decide to give the remaining cats to the burglar, thus doing him a favour and solving the problem of what to do with them. Their plans go wrong, however, when the burglar is arrested for stealing Persian cats. The children go on the carpet to visit him in his cell and rescue him by taking him back to their desert island. There they find Cook, who instantly falls in love with him. The Reverend Septimus Blenkinsop is summoned on the carpet to perform the wedding ceremony, and he and the children are able to fly back to London, leaving the cook and the burglar happily married on the island. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 36 of... Round the Archives. Goodness me. Mm. Uh, right, let's get a shift on then. Mm-hmm. Lots to do. Yes. First of all, we uh, pay a visit to the Round the Archives book tower. We do. Where we're going to talk to Tim Worthington yes. about his book. Welcome to the Round the Archives Book Tower. Yes. The first in a very occasional series. Yes. <laughs> Assuming there is even going to be a second one. Yes. Tonight, Tim Worthington is here. Hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. Hello. Can I just ask, is this Tom Baker era book tower or Neil Innes? Ooh. Well, it depends which one we can find a copy of. <laughs> yeah. There, there is a Neil one knocking around, I think, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Tom Baker's a bit harder to find, but... Uh, we shall see. Yeah, that's just general, though, really. <laughs> <laughs> but, Tim, you've got a new book, haven't you? I have, yes. It's called The Lark's Ascending, and it's a... Uh, you can't really say it's a story of comedy on Radio 3, on BBC Radio 3, because it isn't really a story as such. Just it's a, it's a guide to the various comedy programmes that they put on over the years. Well, you had published a book on comedy on Radio 1, which I don't think we've got, have we? No, we must get that we one. We must get that. Yeah. So was Radio 3 the obvious follow-up? Well, it was in the sense that I didn't even want to go near Radio 4 because, you know, the the amount of comedy that's been on over the years that there's nothing to say about. I mean, I won't name it, but there's one sitcom on there that's been running for 10 years. Well, you know, that would need a whole chapter. And I thought, how could, I can't even find a sentence to say about that. How am I going to approach that? And also, I know some people who wrote a book about weekending, and it did nearly drive them insane because there's just so much of it to cover. So I wasn't, I wasn't interested in Radio 4. Radio 2 I thought about, but it never really had. You know, they've done some interesting programmes over the years, but it wasn't an interesting through line to them. And nothing was that interesting enough. 
you know, they never really pushed the boat out with their comedy shows. But Radio 3, I just thought there were a few that I knew of that I really liked. And I thought, well, I could do a kind of low-key follow-up to Fun at One, just covering them, concentrating on them. I initially thought it'd be so short it would only be an e-book that, you know, it wouldn't be practical to do it in paperback. But the more I looked into it, the more I found. I mean... Almost straight away, I found that Leonard Rosses did a series that I had no idea about. And then, you know, it just occurred to me to start thinking, oh, did so-and-so, you know, was uh, did Ivor Cutler did some stuff on Radio 3, didn't he? What about that? And it just went further and further from there. And then you find yourself thinking, I wonder if the National Theatre of Brent were ever on and that sort of thing. And it just it just grew and grew, really. And I found all kinds of things, like as a completely forgotten Sue Townsend play, which has never even been repeated. And it was never, you know, most of her radio work found its way into various of her books, but this has completely slipped down the cracks. There's a number of sitcoms they did in the 80s that have just vanished, that haven't been on Radio 4 Extra or anything, which are all quite good. There's things that people think were on other stations, like the Atkinson people. Roman Atkinson's very first broadcast work that was actually Radio 3 and commissioned for Radio 3, and it's all in here. That's all I can say, really. But having decided upon this, just take us through how you sort of research all of this you you mentioned in the back um sort of radio times is an obvious place but how much digging do you need to do to find out about stuff you don't know about well it's a it there's a lot of juggling really i mean one of the first things i did was for likely suspects i looked in that i had biographies of looked in the index and see if there was a show that wasn't really that known about and thought, could that have been on Radio 3? And sometimes, like in the Kenneth Williams diaries, it refers to a tribute to greatness, his Radio 3 show, by the wrong title. And I think it says it was on Radio 2. But, you know, when you go digging around, you find, oh, no, hang on, it was a Radio 3 show. Kenneth Williams had a comedy show on Radio 3. How unexpected is that? But there was kind of that. And also, as well as Radio Times, the BBC's arts magazine, The Listener, which is primarily about radio. And they would cover, rather than what what was necessarily big on radio, they would cover what had been interesting. Like, for example, I know this is Radio 4, but in the 80s, they quite often had transcripts of Stephen Fry's Donald Trefusis monologues from Loose Ends, that sort of thing. Anything that they thought people be interested in and quite often they did highlight unusual comedic programming that'd been on Radio 3 I mean that's how I found N.F. Simpson the absurdist playwright did he did a number of things for Radio 3 but he did a thing called something rather effective in the early 70s which is a, a spoof fly on the wall thing about fly on the wall documentary makers following them as they become very immoral in their attempts to actually depict what they're trying to depict in the name of charity that's how I found that and then there's other things like I knew there was at least one sitcom called Patterson on Radio 3 and when I started looking into that I found mention of other sitcoms and thought well hang on how do I find out about that and again it was just there was one Broomhouse Reach where it was literally just trawling through I think two years worth of Radio Times is until I found it but fortunately Radio 3 tends to be just a single strip on each page you don't have to do much digging really Did this one require the, the BBC Written Archive Centre or, or was that not needed this time? Well, well, it really didn't actually because so much 
of even of the things that it turned out didn't, as far as I know, exist anymore. I mean, there there are probably off airs sitting around somewhere of some of those missing shows, but even them, they would be covered in such detail in, say, The Listener or The Guardian or The Observer as well, had quite a few detailed features in, that it was quite easy to, I mean, because, you know, if you're reviewing something on Radio 3, what is there to say apart from when it was on and who was in it? <laughs> and a couple of observations. There's not really generally... I say, I say there's not really generally a huge backstory having ri- just written a book with the backstory of all these things in, but in terms of an article, you know, a feature writer, it was... I hesitate to call them technical reviews, but that's kind of what they were. Are you faced with the problem that TV is faced with, that so much is missing, though, that you, you just can't listen to it, either officially or unofficially? Uh, yes and no, because I think with Radio 3 being that bit more prestigious, that a lot of it has tended to be preserved. I mean, I found out one or two things aren't around, but there are people who have offers that you can't, if you dig around, you can't find online in various places. There are episodes of some of these things up on YouTube, which surprised me when I went digging around for them. So there is, I mean, I'm well aware that there are huge gaps with Radio 2 and Radio 1 in particular. Uh, I think Radio 4 slightly better preserved, but Radio 3, a lot of it seems to be kept, and not just the spoken word stuff. Even now, you can find repeats of concerts from the, not so much the late 60s, but the early 70s. And, uh, you know, very occasionally, they crack the odd joke in the middle of one of those concerts as well. Now, I have to ask about this, and I'm not trying to be rude here, but tell us about the shag butt. Ah, yes, the shag butt, the minikin, and the Flemish clacker. Now, this was one of my major discoveries here, and I did really come across it by chance because I knew that there was a play in 1971 called A Short Visit to Cocaine, as in not spelt like the drug, but spelt like the mythical English land of excess, which was an absurdist thing about a financier who got drawn into a mysterious kind of merry Albion Freemason sort of world. It was, But it was very absurdist. He got given a car phone. This was before car phones existed. That sort of thing. He just got pulled into this world without his consent, really. But I knew that David Cave from the Radiophonic Workshop did the music for that. And while I was looking that up in the listener, I found a letter from him objecting to the review of A Short Visit to Cocaine, which suggested that he'd not actually used, because he used a lot of early music instruments for the soundtrack to give it that authentic kind of oldie-worldie feel. And they'd, they suggested that he hadn't, and it was all synthesised and electronic. And he sent in a letter saying, yes, it was, here's who played it. And are oh, you still smarting because your reviewer got caught out by the shag butt the minikin? in the Flemish clacker and I thought right I have to find out what that is and that was a hoax that him and several other members of the Radiophonic Workshop did I think it went out on Christmas Day in was it 1968 but they did a spoof lecture about these invented kind of medieval early music instruments I think by the the professor who gave the talk was Polyphonica Nies Deninis <laughs> and they demonstrated the, these instruments and if you listen very carefully they're playing a sort of very archaic medieval version of Pop Goes the Weasel and people fell for it and reviewers thought it was real and then the truth came out. There was a show on the other night about the Open University that, mm-hmm. that we watched wasn't there Lisa yes. and I was half hoping that they'd have a bit of emus emu university <laughs> on there but 
there's a chapter in your in your book about the half open university which i'd never heard of so could you tell us a little about that please oh yes that was david renwick and andrew marshall who wrote a number of very well-known comedy shows and later on on their own they did one foot in the grave and 2.4 children but this was when they were when they were just starting out when they were still writing for weekending and a lot of the topical shows that somehow radio 3 had ended up with half hour gap in study on three which is where they put all the educational programs in those days and it was just at the very dawn of the open university when you know, it would still be the novelty so people would have been hearing the fanfare and you know getting used to the style of the presenters and so on just because it was a new thing and they did the spoof of it called the half open university it's absolutely even though it's in front of a studio audience it's note perfect in the you know the little historical recreation sketches and the tone of the professors and so on and there's a brilliant bit where they have the open university fanfare but the 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 the, the sort of loops and it has sort of sheep bleating over it and windows smashing and so on. It doesn't sound as funny when I describe it but it was on the back of that because I think they did two of them eventually and that Radio 4 said well we like this idea but it needs to be a bit more broad and that's how they came up with the Burkis Way which is really their first huge success which I think itself is a bit forgotten but that was a, a sort of spoof correspondence course you know the way in sort of the colour supplement you get those adverts saying I can increase your brain power 800% all you need to send is a postal order for £2 to receive the first of many pamphlets and it was kind of based on all of that but they just went into ever more surreal depths with it but it wouldn't really have happened if it wasn't for Radio 3 and that's true of a lot of the programmes I cover in this actually that they led people on to bigger and better things. Well staying with shall we say educational material I was very pleased to find that there's a chapter on the National Theatre of Brent as you mentioned earlier it's it's a a subject that's very close to our hearts isn't it Lisa so this is all the world's a globe isn't it? which we have managed to listen to a couple of episodes of recently. Mm -hmm. For those of us, for those who don't know, what is the National Theatre of Brent? Well, the entire company of the National Theatre of Brent is Desmond, Olivier, Dingle and Wallace, (laughs) which is uh, Patrick Barlow and Jim Broadbent. And they present in the most, you can't even really call it a send-up because they, as the characters, are deadly serious about what they're doing. But they try to retell the most significant epic historical stories with just the two of them and an appalling script and not many props and all the world's a globe was their their history of mankind from i think it was from the first amoeba to the second world war <laughs> which you know that that's that's ambition isn't it and it was a series of 15 minute sort of explorations of well the history of mankind and again i think people think it was on radio 4 because they didn't repeat it and it was also repeated on radio 2 i found out while doing this so so it must have taken off you know straight away but it did start on radio 3 and it won a lot of awards that year and even martin cropper from the times a radio critic who didn't like anything liked all the worlds of globe so. well so sort of listening to them again mm-hmm. um and lisa you 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 know your history don't I you i do yes and you said that the detail <laughs> they put into it yes is very clever because it's almost like writing a sort of history of the world in the same way that les dawson playing the piano you've got to really know your stuff to do it that badly yes that's exactly it yeah they just it's giving i mean it always reminded me of there used to be 
a comic strip in the NME that I loved called Great Pop Things, where it was, you know, it would be sort of the life stories, you know, Jimi Hendrix or NWA, or could have been anyone like that. But the in order to bend it to get the jokes, the writers had to actually, obviously really knew the careers of these people inside and out. And, you know, that's how they, I've always remembered in the David Bowie one that his mod anthem, The Laughing Gnome, was banned by the BBC because it might cause mods to attack rockers. You know, which is such a... It sounds dumb, but it's a conflation of the actual facts of that stage of his career. And that's exactly what the National Theatre of Brent do. It's it's like picking out randomly the words out of a, a correct and important sentence and then threading those words together. Well, very much playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in, in the, the right, right order, order yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, which is also the name of a programme covered in the book, which is a, a one-off pilot for a panel show that sadly never happened with Frank Skinner, which is a, an irreverent classical music quiz. I've heard of this, but I've never actually heard the episodes. But you also refer to the, the meeting between Peter Cook and Chris Morris... Now, yes. Tell us how Why that. Bother? How, tell us how that that came about and what the results were. I love this program, and it is a real shame it's not better known. It's basically Peter Cook. You know, there's this terrible myth that he, you know, he lost his comic abilities, he gave up, and so on. He didn't. He was still really funny. He was just doing most of it out of the public eye. Like you know, people forget he was writing Private Eye, the comic stuff, almost single-handedly for the you know the whole of the eighties. He did amazing things like that Clive Anderson, where he played all four guests on one show and it was the production company Talkback were very interested in working with him and they could never quite find the right avenue to kind of fire his comic imagination I mean there was a there was a series he did on BBC2 with Ludovic Kennedy interviewing him which kind of gave him the idea for why bother where it didn't work because Ludovic Kennedy isn't really it just didn't have the comic capacity for making Peter Cook really go for it really far on all cylinders but they had a then unknown Chris Morris on their books who He'd obviously been on local radio. I think they'd done on the hour and were looking at transferring it to TV. But they tried to get him into a number of things that they were producing that didn't quite work, including a pilot called It's Only TV, where he interviewed people who complained about ITV programmes, which um, some of those interviews have surfaced and they're absolutely brilliant. But they did eventually think, well, why don't we give him a go with Peter Cook? And it was just dynamite the second they started because Chris Morris didn't come through the usual circuit, you know, the usual progression for a comedy career. And he wasn't, in the words afraid of Peter Cook. And the collaboration was brilliant because they both had ideas and he wasn't afraid to say, because uh, Peter Cook was in character as Sir Arthur Street Griebling, he wasn't afraid to say, I think that's a terrible story, Sir Arthur. Tell me about, and then we'll throw something else into the mix. And it just builds and builds. And I've honestly, apart from not only but also, I don't think there's anywhere else that Peter Cook is quite this inventive. I mean, you never expect the turns that these bizarre stories Sir Arthur tells are going to take. I mean, there's one where he, he actively participates in the LA riots trying to mediate between the police and Rodney King. <laughs> and he, he ends up kind of fighting both sides. <laughs> That's not what you'd expect Peter Cook to come out with, but obviously it was the prodding by Chris Morris that got there. And it went out, I think it went out the week before the day-to-day was on. And a lot of people, obviously, because it was on Radio 3 as well, a lot of people just missed it. And I'd say it was a, I hate the phrase, but I'd say it was a cult favourite, but it's never really become as well-known as it should be, which is quite sad, really. I mean, how much of the stuff you've covered could I go out and buy? Uh, 
not that much actually. Why bother is available on CD and download, which I'm really, really happy about. I mean, there's a bit in the book about the difficulty Chris Morris had in getting it released, which was a, an interesting story to hear. Uh, the Atkinson people, Rowan Atkinson series, is similarly available. There's some Ivor Cutler bits and pieces, and there've been some books actually with transcripts in. Ivor Cutler did a few of his radio appearances, and there's a tremendous Armando Unucci book called Hear Me Out, which has got amongst many other of his pieces of writing about classical music it's got transcripts of all of his Radio 3 interval talks and an opera he did about plastic surgery gone too far and a number of his other Radio 3 things that's really good but beyond that there isn't that much really well Tim we've barely skimmed the surface of your book (laughs) (laughs) this evening I've been very much in, enjoying reading it. And Lisa, you've you've started on it as I well, have, haven't I am you? About a quarter of the way through. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So this does get the, the RTA seal of approval. It does. Uh, yes. Thank you very much. We we we've yet to come up with a logo, but no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we'd certainly highly recommend it. And um, the inevitable question is, is there anything more in the pipeline? Have you got a plan for the future? Yeah, at the moment, I'm very slowly working on the sequel too. I did a book a couple of years ago called Top of the Box, which was a guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes. And I initially thought, there is actually a recording of me out there on the radio saying, I will not be doing the albums because I would go insane. You know, the number of birdsong albums alone is uh, is terrifying. But I thought and thought about it, and I eventually thought, I've got to do this, because there's so many great albums just forgotten out there that need to be talked about. And I found some quite interesting things so far. So, I mean, that's still a work in progress, but that that is on its way. I've got a few other ideas in development as well, so better not talk about them for now. But Tim, we've had you on here before, but I'll ask the question again. Where can we find all your stuff? Uh, well, that would be at timworthington.org. And unlike Radio 3 in 1979, I'm not planning to change my frequency and become wonderful Radio 3, as the King Singers said. Tim Worthington, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Many thanks to Tim for yes, talking to us. thank you, Tim. It was, it was a very interesting talk. As we said, that book's highly recommended. It and it, it taught me a thing or two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read about half of it, and yes, I've learnt new stuff. Next up, Martin Holmes returns to look at a show that is, mm-hmm. oddly enough, just uh, getting a repeat on Talking Pictures TV. Yes, on the 4th of June, from the 4th of June. It, yes, in, in a couple of days' time from yes. when we record this. Yes. So when it gets released, you should... Should be just about right. Yes, it should. So Martin takes a look at... Public Eye.
Public Eye. A long, long time ago, I was working my way through the DVDs I'd picked up of the series Callan, and as I tend to, I found myself looking up bits and pieces of background to the programme in order to fill those gaps that an inquiring mind will sometimes decide it needs to fill. And as I did so, one of the shows that kept on getting mentioned in the same breath was a series called Public Eye, which I had precious little memory of other than vaguely remembering it turning up in the afternoons when I was a youngster, sitting devouring anything and everything the telly would throw at me in those three-channel years during the school holidays. I know that Callan tended to be on during those afternoons, featuring such fare as The Sullivans, Crown Court, A Family at War, Looks Familiar, The Amazing World of Kreskin and Paint Along with Nancy, because my mum rather liked Callan, though I suspect this meant that she rather liked Edward Woodward. But of such mysteries are our parents' lives made. Much of the content of that line-up, incidentally, probably explains a lot about how I ended up, but I digress. Public Eye also got rave mentions in the sorts of magazines like Primetime, which I started buying later on when the serious interest in all things telly-related started to bite deep. But still, somehow, I managed to stagger on through several decades without ever seeing one, or at least without remembering that I'd ever seen one at any rate. And that's a bit of a shame because, as I'm about to explain, it is, quite frankly, Ha-ha. An exceptional piece of television. A few months ago, you see, I decided there were some huge gaps in my archive television knowledge, and I went on a bit of a spree in order to acquire at least a few episodes of several series about which I was not really all that clued up about, and happily I was able to scrape together the pennies to pick up something called A Box Called Frank, which contained several dozen episodes of what remains of a series which spanned ten years on ITV from the middle of the 1960s to the middle of the 1970s, and which, like Callan, spanned the transition of ABC television to Thames and the arrival of colour television itself to screens across Britain. And yet, having heard such good things about the show, I, I still wasn't sure. I, I, I struggled to commit to such a huge chunk of telly to have to watch, and I avoided getting round to seeing any of it for several weeks before popping in disc one and having a look at what it was all about. The first episode in the set still existing is the second one made, and is called Nobody Kills Santa Claus, and it involves our hero, Frank Marker, in a murder plot in which he gets beaten up quite horribly in a case of mistaken identity, and there are a lot of symbolic jigsaw pieces in shot, presumably to justify their place in those early caption cards. Frank doesn't actually feature all that much in this particular episode, and whilst I was impressed by the story, I found myself drawn away to some of those other DVD sets picked up during my spree, and promised myself that I'd return later on, once I got much of the other more fun stuff out of the way. Anyway, fast forward a couple of months, and I decided it was about time I returned, and I popped that same disc into the player and watched the other surviving episode from the end of that first series, entitled The Morning Wasn't So Hot. And I was utterly mesmerised, because it, it really is an astonishing piece of television for something shot in an ITV multi-camera studio in the mid-1960s. Honestly, I was blown away by how good it was. So much of the story of the descent of an ambitious but naive young girl arriving in the big city and being exploited is told through Carol Ann Ford's truly expressive face. Why, why didn't she get more work after Doctor Who? And the episode also features Philip Maddock going the full slime ball. The director, Kim Mills, really uses Carol Ann Ford's facial expressions in extreme close-up to tell the story of her rise to relative riches and her subsequent decline and fall. And 
it's truly terrific stuff for studio work and which ticked all of my gritty and bleak boxes. I was particularly impressed by the use of the limitations of studio multi-camera being turned into strength simply by the use of close-ups. Much of the story told in that episode goes unsaid, but the expressions speak volumes. Excellent stuff. It's also very stark. Apart from that opening haunting blues melody that accompanies the credits, almost no music at all is used in the series. And any music you do hear is usually on a radio or in a pub or nightclub, and you don't really miss it because the words and the performances are so good. After that first series set in London, the location switches to Birmingham for a couple of years, and with a flash of a Brom's Grove Venus and a glimpse of a younger Mar Tyler, the few fragments of the ABC years are gone in the blink of a public eye. You know a TV show has got under your skin when a shonky seven-minute clip of a lost episode from a showreel included as an extra on the DVD for the sake of completeness has you wondering how the story turned out. There is a satisfying streak of underplayed melancholia about the programme, which I'm rather enjoying. It manages to become a wonderful series without being too flashy, a show that cuts away all the supposed glamour of those swinging times and reveals a seedy world in which Frank Marker, as often as not, is acting more as a social worker than as the inquiry agent he is, for Frank Marker is a dour, shabby, put-upon and cynical inhabitant of a grim and shabby version of the world that is a million miles away from the world of other television and movie private eyes of the Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade type, living in an era when James Bond was prancing from bed to bed with a merry quip and a brushed tuxedo with rarely a hair out of place. Frank reeks of low rent and broken lives and, and scrabbling about to find a shilling for the gas meter and people desperate to get out of the little boxes that the social order of the times would have them locked inside with the lid screwed down tight. As ever with black and white television of the mid-1960s, there's an awful lot of episodes that are missing from the archives. In fact, of the 41 episodes making up the full th three full series made by ABC, only five episodes remain. Two each from the first two seasons and one from the third. And that's a great pity because at least three of those five remaining fragments are so good that you can only weep at what has been lost. Because as you work your way through those remaining B&W ABC episodes, it's enthralling. You can see why it gets mentioned alongside Callan. It's also set firmly in the seamier, seedier flip side of the colourful let-it-all-hang-out 1960s in which those not prone to wild lifestyles featuring long hair and micro-skirts somehow managed to stagger through. I'm still wondering why it took me so long to investigate Public Eye, because these are intricate and satisfyingly bleak stories told with such a small cast and often make for grippingly theatrical stuff. We can only imagine the horror of the storyline in those last few ABC episodes, which leads to Frank being set up for a fall by a crooked solicitor and ending up being sent to prison for two years. This leads to a short season of eight rather stark and generally quite bleak episodes set in Brighton and specifically written by Roger Marshall to explore the trials and tribulations of a basically honest man being released from the prison system and being returned into the community. After that series, three more follow, mostly in colour, as Frank rebuilds his life and his business in Windsor before moving on again for the final few episodes once his status as a loner gets threatened once again. So, for this article, Article, I thought I'd quickly look at one episode in particular taken from that middle Brighton-based series because that is a very impressive run from slap-bang in the middle of the series as a whole and the one I've chosen is Divide and Conquer. Episode 2 of that series, filmed in black and white, written by Roger Marshall and directed by Jim Goddard because it left me with such a memorable impression on first viewing, not least because of the impressive amount of location filming. The episode is atypical, of course, because Frank is no longer working as an inquiry agent but, upon release from prison, has been given a job as a builder's labourer 
and it is early days in his attempts to rebuild his life from the nothing it appears to have been reduced to by circumstances beyond Frank's control. It's a story told, as many of such television dramas of this type were in those times, in three acts. The first involves a couple of biker boys, placed by Terence Rigby and Richard O'Callaghan, running a con on a day out in Brighton whilst Frank starts his new job. The second involves Frank's path crossing with theirs as he foils another attempt at running the same con. The third act is astonishing and involves a showdown on the beach when the bikers come looking for Frank and how he gets out of the planned beating they had lined up for him. After the black and white version of the Thames logo expands in its familiar way, the more mournful mix of the already solemn theme tune plays out across silhouettes of Frank Marker walking along Brighton Beach and we fade to an extended sequence of two bikers arriving in Brighton in a manner that must have seemed terribly familiar to people watching the endless battles between the mods and the rockers back then. This pair are definitely more of the rocker type and, as we will learn, are more prone to ignorance and bullying than those around them, but they get away with it because they can appear at first to be terribly amenable, but also terrifyingly intimidating. Meanwhile, on an ordinary day in the life, and back in the studio, Frank is sleeping and is brought tea in bed by his rather wonderful landlady, Mrs Mortimer, played by Pauline Delaney, who seems to have taken rather a shine to our Frank as they discuss the fact that it's his first day at work. Despite being something of a loner throughout to do the job he does and to get people to like him enough to betray confidences, Frank must actually be a quite personable person really and people do seem to take to him. This is especially evident as throughout the series he always does find several people like Mrs Mortimer who are prepared to help him out and who genuinely do seem to like the old curmudgeon. Later on, when things might get too serious, Frank will disappear from her life quite suddenly and that's something of a shame really but then Frank really doesn't like to let anyone get too close although the ties he makes in this particular set of episodes will actually take take three full series to be fully cut. But that's for the future, and we ought not to be getting too far ahead of ourselves. Let us return to the episode in hand. On the seafront, the bikers pull up outside a cafe run by Ken Orwell Ives Jones and helpfully bring in the crates of milk bottles, and they involve themselves in some matey banter and chair dancing as they ingratiate themselves with the owner over breakfast. Meanwhile, over his own breakfast, Mrs Mortimer laments Frank's lack of post, and therefore people in his life, as they discuss fellow guest Mr Enright, another ex-con and former solicitor, with his recent history that sets Frank's alarm bells ting and the holidaymakers who have come to stay on eight consecutive years. The whole thrust of this is that the probation people seem to think that Frank needs to engage with people, whereas Frank really does seem to think that he's better off alone, and whilst he is sent off with a friendly box of sandwiches for his lunch, the fear that crosses Frank's face is palpable. Meanwhile, back in the calf, the bikers, a right pair of rogues not above putting their feet on the table, draw cards for who should pull the con, and it is Terence Rigby's character who gets to play the old fiver-in-the-envelope switcheroo on Ken Jones and they quietly roll their bikes away, leaving him as yet blissfully unaware. Frank, meanwhile, arrives at work in a builder's yard, and there are references back to the timber yard outside Frank's old Birmingham office as he discusses post-prison confusion with his new boss, Mr Kenrick, as played by William Moore, who you might remember as Timothy Lumsden's dad. Language, Timothy! In sorry. As they leave for the site of Frank's allocated task, namely Black Rock, where he is soon to have a bad day, Frank is given some workman's clothes. There are some moments with Frank's employment cards, and the secretary which will seed into the next episode a particularly tense one called paid in full where frank comes a cropper at the hands of brian croucher another bleak yet brilliant episode about frank marker and the missing pay packet from hell which will really crank up anyone's tension levels but again we're getting sidetracked it really is that kind of a series as the works vehicle takes frank to black rock we also spot the bikers in a portent of meetings yet to come and frank is dropped off and after sharing a joke with the boss about what he should do for water to mix his cement they're standing by right 
right by the sea, and a little insight into why Mr Kenrick is prepared to help out ex-offenders, his brother in Parkhurst, Frank is left alone until 5.30 to work on shoring up sea defences. Meanwhile, back in the calf, Ken Jones cracks and tears open the envelope to find out, surprise, surprise, that he's been conned, which marks the end of part one. After the ad break, the bikers are playing in the surf on their motorbikes and generally having fun as Frank toils away. He is met on the seafront by a day fisherman, Mr Cooper, played by Norman Jones, who seems to know Frank from prison, and they discuss this notion of needing friends or otherwise. Cafe Ken, meanwhile, has gone off to the police station to report the theft of five pounds, still a significant chunk of cash back then, and is treated less than seriously, to be honest, but a report is taken which may or may not prove significant later on. Meanwhile, the bikers have acquired stupidly undersized seaside cowboy hats and are munching on candy floss as Frank's working day comes to an end. The biker boys are choosing the saucy seaside postcard for their next con when Frank has his first contact with them, as Terence's character nicks his newly bought newspaper. Frank wends his weary way home where Mr Enright, Peter Kellier, playing just the sort of slightly posh and slightly officious role he always seems to get, offers him a beer, and they chat about prison life despite Frank seeming very uncomfortable with this. Luckily, he is saved, for the moment at least, by the sound of the dinner gong. Later that same evening, whilst a lot of play is made of Frank fiddling with his wristwatch as he eats his cheese, the luxury of choice being another of life's little freedoms returning to him, he is once again collared by Mr Enright, who tells him his own sad tale of how he got caught and persuaded, fatefully as it happens, to go down the pub, rather than sit not writing letters to the nobody in the world who cares about him. Defeated by this certain logic, after which he shares another joke with Mrs M, Frank and Enright find themselves in the same pub as the bikers who are hilariously comparing their noses to sausages after a day in the sun, suggesting mustard as a cure. Frank's still frantically winding his watch and reflecting on the novelty of freedom as the bikers return to run, attempt to run their con again on the hapless barman as played by Norman Mitchell. Frank intervenes and, as often seems to happen to our Frank, gets a punch in the stomach for his trouble. However, as a pair of ex-prisoners, they do manage to talk the grateful landlord, he only lost ten bob instead of a fiver, out of involving the police, and they head home, followed by the angry bikers, who narrowly avoid running them down in the street, and who lurk outside the boarding house as Frank brushes his teeth and puts out the light, marking the end of part two. Part three is pretty much shot all on film, and is, quite frankly, brilliant. The bikers have stayed overnight in Brighton by breaking into a beach hut and, after a bad night's sleep, are out for revenge upon the know-all who involved himself and ruined their little scam. Frank leaves for work and is watched and followed to where he is left alone again, and as he prepares his cement in the foreground, the bikers menacingly roll into shot in the distance behind him, giving a growing sense of threat and foreboding as we are itching for Frank to notice their presence. When he finally does, the three close-ups reminded me of the shootout scene at the end of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly in many ways, and the sense of growing threat and menace is very similar. Terence Rigby's character goes into full-on intimidating bully mode as he finds Frank's box of egg sandwiches and mockingly raids it, and, whilst the camera momentarily favours Frank's shovel, it is left to him to use his words to talk himself out of a probable beating if not worse. This he does admirably, once he's aware that the bigger chap really wants his pal to keep out of it so he can administer the beating one-on-one. He boasts of the five times his little con worked the day before, and Frank is able to undermine him by pointing out to him, and more importantly his pal, that they got too greedy and that they must be amateurs because a professional would have known when to stop. And when his pal pipes up that he said that himself, and despite Terence's threatening assurances that Frank's going to need a far bigger spoon to stir with than that, Frank persists 
protests, saying that he would only have a partner up with someone smarter than him, leading the pal to crack, and for Terence to accidentally name him. Another Frank, coincidentally, and more significantly, not a name our Frank is likely to forget, which gives our Frank more ammunition, as the less-than-stable bully, finally revealed to be a Harry, loses his cool and threatens our Frank with his own shovel, the one which we spotted earlier. Frank is then able to weave a tale about coppers in the pub that we know weren't there, swiftly responding squad cars, and the probability of two years inside for assault and battery, or GBH. And whilst Harry claims that Frank doesn't scare him, Frank points out that he would be, and weaves a further picture of slammed cell doors and lonely nights, as he cleverly gets Frank's motorcycle number plate, and ultimately persuades Frank the biker to flee, as all these little pieces of the jigsaw are likely to narrow down the list of suspects to basically him. Harry's rage escalates, and once potential accessory to murder seems the likely outcome, Frank the biker is off, and our Frank is able to expose the bully Harry as the do-nothing braggart type that he reveals himself to be, despite the big rock he threatens Frank with for a time. Finally, with Frank pointing out that a pro would be far away from here setting up a cast-iron alibi, Harry is finally overwhelmed by his own fears of the actual consequences of his actions and throws away the rock and finally walks away, leaving Frank to wash his face as they ride off. Having brilliantly survived this situation solely by using his words and his wits, the fisherman returns and, after a few reflections on his departing new and unpleasant friends, and whether he can begin to pick up the threads of his new life, there's a moment of reflection that the weather might break tomorrow, and Frank returns to his work as the camera pulls back, revealing him tiny and alone in the vast landscape, and the audience can relax and breathe again. But then Brian Croucher is lurking to bugger it all up for Frank again next week. I'm still wallowing in the later colour series via DVD at the moment, but it is proving to be a rather long and yet totally enjoyable journey. Later on, in an episode called The Beater and the Game, Terence Rigby would return to public eye to play an Irish-American gangster in a role that is almost as disconcerting as Alfred Burke's American hitman was in the episode of Ghost Squad I watched during the same week. Those later series are, as I mentioned earlier, in colour and set, at least for a time, in Windsor, which gives them a very different backdrop and a very different feel, especially given the general air of bleakness in the Brighton series. Somewhere along the way, I think UK TV drama seems to have lost this knack of creating understated bleakness. I think it's why Swedish Wallander felt quite wonderful, and the UK remake really didn't seem quite the same. There's a quote somewhere by the author of the Wallander books about the most satisfying thing being when Kurt goes into a room and contemplates it quietly, and I think that modern UK efforts have lost this ability in a sea of shouting and explosions and nonsensical plot developments, just in case we lose our concentration and switch over. Despite the age, sometimes public eye feels as fresh as a daisy, possibly because it is generally populated by more ordinary and less way-out characters than other series of those times. The scripts are still relevant, and so the only thing dating it really are the now classic cars all around the streets and the occasional loud shirt, short skirt or ridiculous haircut. Public Eye does also have the pleasant air of a series less inclined to objectify women and be far more even-handed to all aspects of society, unlike so many of the programmes surrounding it in the schedules during the times it was made. You only need to look at the casual sexism and racism in other well-remembered mainstream shows like Porridge, Faulty Towers or The Sweeney to see how easily they slipped into that sort of thing. I watched a Galton and Simpson Playhouse recently that was like watching a car crash when it came to attitudes to women, and that came from 1977, and highly respected writers. Public Eye did manage on the whole to avoid making those mistakes at least. Meanwhile, Frank Market and Public Eye faded from our screens in 1975, never to be seen again. This is apparently due to the fact that Alfred Burke 
himself thought that the series would lose a lot of its character if it was moved as was apparently planned completely onto film although given the extended film sequences in episodes like divide and conquer i don't believe it would have been so bad whether or not this refusal to continue had anything to do with it public eye seems to have been the high point of alfred burke's career he did have another lead role in enemy at the door for a couple of years but that seems to have been his lot as a lead actor in a television series and that's something of a shame because his performances throughout are nothing less than superb especially given that apart from a few recurring characters over the years he is pretty much the calm center around which the whole series revolves with the loss of so many early episodes it's difficult to gauge whether the eclectic mix of hardness and whimsy of the later thames series was following the pattern of the earlier abc series due to those huge gaps in the archive but i i like to think that the series wasn't all relentlessly grim but you never know Maybe Frank Marker did, after all, mellow with age, and we'll probably never know unless by some miracle more of the ABC series turn up. As to what we do still have, well, the series might appear anti-establishment, dour, cynical, world-weary, but within his own world, Frank, the eternal loner, a man who still needs to cut out bits of cardboard to stop his shoes from leaking, and still runs out of coffee from time to time, remains a calm constant, and if you're looking for a good, solid slice of contemporary teledrama from the 60s and 70s, public eye is quite frankly well worth trying out Thanks to Martin yes, for that. Thank you, Martin. We'd uh, had Public Eye in a box set for ages. For ages, yeah. We watched a few episodes. I, th- I think we watched the first two that yeah. exist, and then it got we? sort of lost in the pile of yeah. DVDs. But um, because Talking Pictures TV just yes. happened to be showing it, I what? think are going to be showing. Uh, it. Uh, well, when you're listening to this, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we should w- watch a few more, don't you? We should, yes. Because we watched yes. this one. Because Martin did it and really enjoyed he did. it. He yeah. did, yeah. It was yeah. a fantastic cast. As it well. is, yeah. and I do like the way that there's no actual violence from Frank Marker yeah. in this. He uses his brain to get himself out of a situation and talks his way out. And seeing Brighton is yeah. is always nice because yeah. we went there and stayed we did. in a, yeah, in, a very ho- nice hotel. in a hotel with the sea view. Yes. Though of course the pier we stayed now ne- next to is the burnt out one, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Yeah. But yes. So, um, yeah, as mm-hmm. we said, Talking Pictures TV, Yeah, drop in and have a look. Yes. Uh, next up, mm-hmm. a very brief sort of mini-review, I guess yes. you could call it, yeah. by Paul, Nick and Andy Ching yes. of... The Tyrant King. Hello, Lisa and Andrew. It's me, Paul the Shayetti. Um, I've got two guests with me this time. It, it's um, it's Nick Goodman and Andy Ching, and uh, we're we're talking about a series that I sort of 
didn't know anything about, but stumbled upon, partly due to the music that's in it. I was reading a, a music uh, review of some 60s music, and it mentioned that the music was in the series The Tyrant King, which is a, a kid's series from 1968, which has connections to Ace of Wands and Get Carter. But um, we've just watched the first episode. Uh, Nick, what have you got to say? Well, it was a bit different, wasn't it? Mm. Um, as I say, it's got the sort of setup of a traditional kids' show. It's a bit like a, a TV program of a children's film foundation type of thing um very up to date when you consider the time because it's in color it's very 60s it's very you know determined to be down there and the kids um are quite famous 5e but um lovely candice glenering who went on to do the black seven episode weapon as a, a young teenie here um i believe it was made almost partly to showcase London yeah. and sort of show it off to try and get more young people to come and visit the city. And the story, in a way, is not exactly inconsequential, but it's um, not the main reason for it being made. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Trevor Preston, of course, is at uh, uh, the writing helm who created... Did he create the Ace of Wands, eh? Uh, he either created it or wrote... He certainly mm. wrote um, some significant episodes. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, it's it's a nice kind of build up. I mean, you you can't really go wrong with Philip Maddock, can you? I mean, he's, he's class. In the in the first episode, we've seen we've been on um, a boat down the Thames. We've seen mm. uh, the, the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. We've seen Tower Bridge. We've yeah. seen so Tower of London. We've seen St Paul's. Uh, I must admit, I've never ever heard of it before today, and um, it's interesting little thing. Um, as I say, very ahead of, ahead of its time because of the colour thing. It was actually the first um, production of um, Thames, yeah. which was brand new at the time. It had just taken over from ABC. Well, you know, like often happens when you go down these Wikipedia rabbit holes. I was looking at uh, Wikipedia sites about Moody Blues, and then it mentioned that some of the music was in this, and I thought, well, what's this? And I ended up looking into that, and then discovered it was available to buy it. It wasn't expensive, so here we are now. <laughs> I thought, and I also thought, this is going to be the sort of series that I can cover in around the archives, which um, maybe maybe people won't have heard of. So, yeah, um, I did, including it for viewers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I haven't. Uh, I literally this this I only read about it two or three weeks ago, so it um, it's only been in my hot little pause for about a couple of weeks. So I hadn't watched it in advance. Um, Andy, any thoughts? Any any um, comments? Well, uh, like yourselves, I've never heard of this before. Um, if it's the first thing that Thames as a company has done, it seems um, like a very light on the story so far, but it has all the hallmarks of being what a lot of other children's TV shows at the time um, seem to copy. Yeah, there's lots of those kind of feelings. And, of course, us being kids of the 70s, it's all very recognisable and quite nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> um it seems to be the kind of story that I'd be interested in. So I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be worth it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm interested in seeing what London looked like sort of around the time I was born or slightly earlier. So um, I wasn't so worried about... I mean, the story is sort of 
um, uh, it's not uh, it's a little bit quirky and it's supposed to be it's sort of billed as being quite psychedelic and the the music the sixties music used in it are more psychedelic but psychedelic bands like Pink Floyd and things so um I don't yeah. I, 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 I don't think it's just so psychedelic as is being very sixties you know it's it's kind of like you say showcases the yeah. the London I think it might be going to get more psychedelic it says it on the box <laughs> I don't know it's like what's it what was the changes? Seventy five, but just I think maybe from the editing and the mm. music, kind of had that kind of editing style. Yeah, I yes. think it was been uh, entirely on film. So as maybe well. you know, even though it's only ever been shown once, and no bug has ever heard of it, it must have had last to impression mm. from these Thames employees mm. that kind of style for kids' adventure series. Yeah. But I mean, one one thing is I noticed from the box that uh, it's. Um, I was born the day before the penultimate episode mm-hmm. um, went out, and it's featured. I noticed in, interesting features Tower of London, mm. and a Tower of London visit was my pretty well my earliest memory. <laughs> um, so that was that was interesting. Um, uh, and uh, the Candy Scullering two years three years later was in Nicholas and Alexander as, as Michael Jason's daughter. Yeah. Um, so she went on to good thing. I don't know whether she's still acting, but. Um, but no, it's 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 tricky. Like Andy said, that yeah, hopefully it'll um, be you know it'll turn out to be worthwhile. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we've just watched the first episode, and um, there were six episodes, so we're not going to go any further this time. But um, I think it's probably worth picking up and having a look if you're interested in sort of yeah. kids' TV of that time and also just interested in 60s music, late 60s music. And the evolution and of telly at the time, because, of course, Thames was brand spanking new and uh, they were exploring sort of the possibilities of film series. Um, and, and, of course, according to, the, you know, it, it led to Euston films and, mm. and things like Sweeney and things like that. It sort of... It was... <laughs> led the way for I find it very interesting just seeing the fashions and how London's changed and also like you know this was back in the time when the Docklands was was sort of in rubble almost not quite but uh, certainly isn't the Docklands as we know it um, in 2019 Mm. uh, um, yeah interesting to see Mm. so yes a little review from us and uh, the Tyrant King might be worth checking out back to you Andrew and Lisa Thank you to Paul, Nick and Andy for that. Yes, thank you. Again, a series I don't know at all. No, no. We've watched the first episode and it's interesting. Yeah, um, now, we, we mentioned it to Tim Worthington that yeah. we were going to do it and he, he was very keen. because yeah, I, I think, think he likes kind very, of music, Very fond he? of it, yes. yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, although that was just a brief look at episode mm-hmm. one, I think there's an opportunity to go back to it at some yes, stage. And I know Andy said on Facebook mm-hmm. today he'd like to see some more. Yes. So, yes, please, if you want to yeah. carry on with that. Yeah, if you want to do it, feel free. Please do. Yes. And finally, I guess we ought to do something. Yes. yes. So you and me mm-hmm. will take a look at... The Phoenix on the Carpet.
Hello, Lisa. Hello, Andrew. The Phoenix and the Carpet. Yes, indeed. Which I remember mm-hmm. seeing mm-hmm. originally. Yes. And you probably don't. No, I was only about five when it started. It's like only slightly older than the Lamb. Uh, the Lamb. <laughs> <laughs> but if this is your first full seeing of it, yes. It what did you think then? Um, I will admit to having struggled. All right. Through some of it. Okay. Um, probably because uh, I can't really engage with any of the characters. Right. Uh, I mean, any of the characters in it whatsoever, apart from possibly the Phoenix, and then he, he even he's a bit sort of annoying at the end. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's because they're good, well brought up middle class children, <laughs> and I, I wasn't, and I'm I'm not middle class. Well, let me read you the back of the blurb. Okay. On the Puffin book. Mm -hmm. Five children find a magic carpet able to journey through time and space. I don't know about time. And inside it is a strange egg which hatches into the phoenix, an ancient and honourable bird who helps them have adventures which never turn out exactly as planned. Well, I will point out that when they go to the the palace of the Rani in the, I think it's what, episode three or four? Mm -hmm. That's probably back in time. All right, okay. But this is... Late 76, yes. early 77, Yes, it runs. Yeah. Um, it's part of the BBC kids' schedule. Yes. So you've got Play School, Wacky Races, Jack and Ori, Goober and the Ghost cha- Chasers, and Phoenix and the Carpet. Excuse me sniffing, sorry, I've got a little you, bit of a cold. You've so. got a cold, but yeah. I wish you didn't have a cold. Well, so do I. But we're not, we're sat, not on the carpet, we're not so that's not going to help. I'm not sure that would help anyway, that just put you somewhere hot wouldn't it so episode one the phoenix in the carpet the first of an eight-part story about an edwardian family in london so it is edwardian yeah well i think we'd have that down anyway who experienced a series of extraordinary and magical events mm-hmm. part one the magic fire so in the opening episode yes. they basically just find the carpet in a sort of oh, shop, like a junk shop or an uh, antique shop and they tape it take it home and inside is the hag well, they, they, yes, they want to buy it, but and the man doesn't he deliver it? Yes, he delivers it. The shop owner. Yeah, but the because he says they let them have it on um, sale or return. Sale or, no, on ten days of, of approval. You know, approval, but the father pays for it anyway. So, yeah. but yeah. this already deviates slightly from the book because yeah. in the book they destroy their old carpet by letting off fireworks and paraffin. Yeah, you're not going to show that on television for children to copy, are you? <laughs> That well, wouldn't really be very good. I was going to say, there's a later adaptation of it, and don't mm. they make a bit more reference to it in Probably, the, in the, yes. in the, in the yes. later one? But it's never quite explained why they, no. why they need a new need carpet. A new, new carpet. Yeah. Um, it's produced by Dorothea Brooking mm-hmm. and uh, directed by Clive Doig. Yes. And of course, Doctor Who fans of a certain age yes. know that Gary Russell's in there. They do. Playing Cyril. Cyril. Or Squirrel, um, as they call him. Yeah. And you've already mentioned the lamb, the haven't lamb. you? It's yes. very weird credit to read, the yes, lamb, because you, you think there's a lamb, but it's just a baby. It's, that... a, ch- it's a child, and apparently they call him the lamb because his, his first words were bar. All right. Even the parents call him the lamb, and the but servants. This is this is like the middle one of three Nesbitt stories, yes. though, isn't it? Which is Five yes. Children and It, yes. which is before this, yes. and the story of the amulet. Yeah. And people might... I've seen Five Children and It, Mm because that was adapted later on, wasn't it? It was, and they also made a film with it as well. Um, Of it, not with it. 
But episode one, they sort of test the carpet out, don't yeah. they? And they go off to a, a tower, yes. don't they? Because um, yes. they, they, they go abroad. We wish to go abroad. Yeah. And they fly over yeah. over overseas. Yes. And I think they land in France. They do they? land in France. Yes. They work it out. And, With wonky CSO. Yeah. And, and uh, they sort of land in this tower, which doesn't have a top. Yes. Um, and there's a load of... Well, there's a load of... There's some rubbish ghosts outside yeah, well now what we should say as well that is that um robert mm. who is the there are four four children two boys well four children that take part in the adventures two boys and two girls yeah so you got and robert who is the younger boy yeah. manages to step off the side and then they have to send the carpet up to fetch him down thus using up a wish thus using a wish because they get you haven't actually said that they get three wishes a day yeah so and they manage to they use all their three wishes up because you've got Cyril, Gary Russell, Anthea, yeah. Tamsin Neville, mm-hmm. Robert Max Harris, and Jane, Jane, played by Jane Forster. Yes. Who you said Gary Russell is friends with on Facebook. I or think something. so. That, that, I'm, that makes it sound like I'm stalking him. I yeah. looked at his page. We're not friends with Gary on, on Facebook. Yeah. But yeah. You can look at his page. If Gary Russell is listening to this, hello, Gary. Yes, hello, Gary. <laughs> He's probably not. You're jolly good. Yes, indeed. Um, but yeah, there's some r- rubbish ghosts outside. It's yes. just people in sheets. It isn't is just it? people in sheets. That's the cliffhanger because obviously it's designed as to have a cliffhanger at the end of each half an hour episode. Given that this episode carries on immediately after Goober and the Ghost Chasers, yes, which is before it, that's quite bad. appropriate. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, by by the time we get to episode two. Mm-hmm. Which is these are these are all shown on a Wednesday. Mm. So this is Wednesday, the fifth of January. Mm-hmm. Episode two is, and the lineup afterwards in the evening is is quite fun, I think, and one I I vaguely remember, because you've got Nationwide, mm-hmm. Holmes and Yo Yo, The Goodies, mm. Rosie, and then Kojak. Okay. So that's not a bad lineup in no, my no. in my book. I suppose not. But episode two. It says, uh, the children find themselves transported back from France to London and from there onto a faraway desert island. So that's Queen of the Island, yes. which is episode two. Yes. Unfortunately, mm. they managed to take their cook with them. Yeah. We just better say about who the ghosts are, though. Yes, oh, the ghosts are um, the, uh, it's a local French family. family. Well, it's a French yeah. mother and son. Yeah. And they, they're trying to keep people away from the area because they've... Um, her husband died, and he had he had all of his sort of treasure or something, yeah. sort of, and he's hidden it somewhere, and they're trying to find it. Now the children have already found this, but they don't find that out. She takes them off to stay in their house. I like the way the children were just going to nick the treasure. Yeah, they were going to nick the treasure because Cyril wants a motor car. Yeah, that's the first point against yes. them, isn't it? Yes. Like... yes, but they do do. In the end, when they find out they need it because they're going to have to leave their house if they don't get the money, they they do give them the money back. Yeah. So they it works out well in the end. But <laughs> uh, there are several points in this where the children's behaviour is objectionable. Yeah. Well, we'll get to the worst case a yes. bit later on, but yeah. Um, but yeah, they go off to a desert island with the cook, with the cook don't they? Yes. Because the 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 cook. Because all of this is kept secret from their parents. Well, isn't they do it? tell their parents stuff, but their parents don't believe them. Because yeah. do you think the parents are quite absent? Um, well, I think they're typical Edwardian parents. The, 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 they don't really want much to do with their kids, do no, they? No, pa- parents of a certain class yeah. at this time would only see their pa- their children for a short time in the morning. 
after breakfast yeah. and a short time in the evening before bed. Apart from that, they were looked after by the servants. Yeah. And they are of a... These are upper, upper middle class, so they do have more to do with their children. But yeah, they have a lot of freedom. But the, Too much. The, the cook doesn't really get on with the kids. No, because she says they pay tricks on her and, yeah. and stuff. So she yeah. wants to sort of go away, doesn't she? Wants she wants to leave, yes. Yeah. So in the end, she ends up on this desert island. Yeah, well, she's given some time off and she goes to see the king and queen, who... Giving this is an Edwardian yeah. story and it's written originally in 1904 would be Edward the Seventh and Queen Alexandria. Yeah. But she says the king looks handsome. Does he? Um, Does he in 1904? At this point, his nickname was Tum Tum. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> well, perhaps she likes him large. Perhaps she does, yeah. So, but she, she'd like to be a queen. Yeah. This is an important clue to yeah. what's going to happen later on in this because of course she ends episode. up standing on the carpet she stands and... on the carpet just as they wish to go somewhere warm because the lamb's got a cough yeah so they <laughs> want to go somewhere yeah, it's, got, it's got one of those dreadful rubbish coughs that children <laughs> do which is sort of <laughs> well the baby's not doing it have is a proper it? cough you know have a good <laughs> but so ba- babies doing that might be a bit um, freaky yeah <laughs> so anyway they end up on this desert island but she faints doesn't she oh and then when she wakes up, they're on this desert island. She's in, like, the water at one point. And she goes for a paddle. Yeah. She thinks it's a dream. Because she thinks she's in the bath or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, yeah, um, we do have to perhaps gloss over the portrayal <laughs> yes. of the uh, of, of local, the local people on the island. Yes. Well, uh, just bear in mind it was the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there might be some makeup involved. But she's quite happy to stay, isn't she? Yes. And they think she's a queen because it's been foretold that the queen will rise from the water. Yeah. And because she's in the water paddling, so they when basically... she sat down in it. Well, sat down yeah. in it, yeah. They basically make her their queen and she's quite happy to stay there. Yeah. So, I'm assuming she has no family. No. Because, you know, they would probably miss her. Okay. Episode three. The children arrive back in London, leaving Cook as Queen of the Island. Their next next adventure takes them further afield to another exotic place. Episode three. Some Indian things. Yes. So this is they visit. Um, was it the Rani? Yes, because they um, their mother was going to help out the local bazaar, mm. but she has to go and visit her sister who's unwell. So and and the people, the ladies involved in the bazaar, and the um. I don't think, oh, and the, is it the curate? I think the curate's yeah, there as well. Yeah. And one of the ladies is rather objectionable. She's she's sort of, oh, well, what my story does, it always does really well. And they help the other lady out by going to India to find her some treasures. Because she's got an Indian stall. she's got an Indian stall to find her something for her stall. Yeah. That's why they go there. You were saying that the curate was uh, was actually one of the nicer characters. Yeah, the curate is one of the, the curate and the, and the lady are one of the nicer characters in it because they, you know... They come across quite well. Yeah. But it's you have to bear in mind this is a story written in a certain age. So it's written for a certain kind of person yeah. as well. But you so. get quite a nice cliffhanger with this one where the carpet is yes. sold on, yes. isn't it? Well, they get back to the bazaar and they, they, they apparently find all these treasures because she's written to her cousin or a brother or somebody who's going to hopefully send some treasure so they make out what this is what this is but she accidentally sells their carpet to the the objectionable lady (laughs) 
But yeah, and although you say it's a bit of a cop-out how they get round it. Yes. So let's, let's move on to episode four. Uh, episode four, the Temple of the Phoenix. The children have returned to the church bazaar in the nick of time with their gifts. They have a great surprise in store from them when they take the Phoenix on a tour of the City of London. Yeah. So the carpet's with the, with the nasty with old the lady. Horrible old lady. Yeah. So they go and see her and say to her it was sold by mistake, but she refuses to give it back. But, because um, she's got it laid out in front of the fire, mm. and she and... I think it's Jane, isn't it? The younger girl. Mm. She, she, they're standing on the carpet when she wishes she would be nicer. Yeah, and then she is. And then she is. And so that deals with the problem. Yeah, it deals with the problem. <laughs> but it, it kind of, in a way, it's 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 a quite a nice thing to do because it makes her happier again. Yeah. She finds that she's happier now. She's not being horrible about everything. So perhaps that's a lesson. Yeah, but you get a quick sort of uh, tour of London. Yes. Don't you? Where they encounter some rough children. Some don't rough they? children, yes. Who steal the phoenix. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was gr- grinding my teeth at that a yeah. bit. Because out of the two sort of groups, we'd be among the rough children. We wouldn't, wouldn't be among the rough children. We wouldn't be, you know, living in the nice house. Yeah. And there's no look to see why they might be like that that maybe they need you know the money for food but no no they're just but it, it does feel a bit sort of mary poppins-ish at this point because yes. they go off yeah. into london to yeah. is it the insurance company they want to find that the tem- the phoenix wants to see its temple yeah. his temple so they find the um yeah the, the phoenix insurance company so yeah if your house burns down yes then they'll help you rise it raise it from the ashes yeah, yeah. and so the sort of phoenix uh, as so he, he sort of does some mind control he stuff does. doesn't he yeah he's a bit naughty and, and he yeah. gets everybody that works there to come and praise him yes. basically and, and sing a rather odd song yes about the phoenix <laughs> <laughs> and it's got jeffrey siegel in it from um rent ghost yes oh, Mr. That's, Perkins. that's that's true well he's, he's in everything isn't he well, he's in loads of things but yeah. that's probably the thing that people would recognize him from. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to uh, episode five. I have to remember what happens in that one. Thankfully, BBC Genome is quite good for this, for mm-hmm. telling me. Uh, are you going to have a drink? I'm going to have a drink. Okay. You carry on looking. Okay, episode five. Uh, gifts from Persia. The children have taken the Phoenix on a tour of the City of London and they have a further surprise. They send the carpet away to its native land to bring back some gifts. Mm. But are nonplussed when they see what arrives. Yes. So what arrives, Lisa? Persian cats, kittens. Lots and lots of lots kittens. Lots and lots of kittens. Uh, and a cow. And a cow. Well, well later on. Later on, yeah. a cow. Yeah. Um, the kittens, of course, they think want something to drink. Yes. So they go. So the carpet goes and gets milk in the form of a cow, a cow as well. Yes. Yeah. And there's this brilliant publicity photo of like all the kids with the, yeah. with the cow. Uh, now, yeah. and now I understand Gary Russell isn't too keen on cows. No, but I think that happened after this, didn't uh, it? From, that, that's from his um, yeah. famous five days. Yes. But, you know, if you're listening to this, Gary, let us know. Yeah. Let us know the story. Yeah. How did you feel about the cow? Because he has to hold the cow at one point. Yeah. But this is noticeable that all the cats are on film, aren't yes. they? This is like yeah. sort of Jessica in, uh, yeah. in Some Mothers Do yeah. Have Them, that cut to cats on film. Yeah. But they're rather cruel to the cats. Yeah. Because it's not the cat's fault. Yeah, well, well, this, this is the thing. Once they've got the cat and the cow... Mm, cats. Cats and the cow. They, they um, think, how can we get rid of them? Yes. So, 
So basically, mm. they're just going to leave them on people's... Put yes, them in bags. They put them in pillowcases and leave them on people's doors. They don't even knock on the people's doors to let them know there's a cat on the doorstep. Because don't, don't they, they put one, one lot in a, a carriage that's yeah, just going past? on the past. back of a carriage. Why have the cats falling So off? this is a really bad example. It to, is a bad example. Don't you, put cats on You can imagine the kids cars. like leaving their kittens on yeah, people's, people's doorstep. doorsteps. Yes. Yes, this episode was like... The, that, that's yes. where you lost patience with I the kids, I did lose patience with the children because they wish for presents, they got nice cats, then they don't want the cats. Yeah. But... Uh, it's not the cats' fault that they ended up there. I mean, there was a lot of them. But, uh, so, episode six, what to do with a burglar. The children mm. have sent the carpet away to its native Persia to bring back some gifts to entertain them. When it returns, however, they are nonplussed to find that the gifts are four-legged, furry and need feeding. They have an unwelcome visitor in the house, but solve several problems by taking him to the desert island. Yeah, but I would point out it's their fault that the burglar gets in because they leave. Robert leaves the door on the latch, but doesn't shut it properly, and it comes open. So the burglar, who is played by Bernard Holly, yeah. walks in. He's not really a burglar. He's a bit down on his luck because all of his all his he had some oranges on a barrow and they've been stolen. <laughs> You've also got the Reverend Septimus Blenkinsop yes. in the form of yeah. Nigel Lambert. So what happens is they give the kittens that are left to the burglar yeah. to sell to make some money. Yeah. Then he gets stopped by a policeman who thinks he's stolen the Persian cats. So they have to go to the prison, rescue the burglar. burglar the burglar. Burglar. Who they take to the desert island. Yeah where the cook immediately falls in love with him. <laughs> then they have to go and get a vicar, because she wants to be married, to marry them on the desert island. <laughs> getting a bit complicated. I was going to say, at least some sort of plot threads do yeah, actually yeah, yeah. sort of um, start to yes. start to coalesce here. I like the fact that uh, the cow is, is played by Annie the cow Annie as the herself. Cow. Yes. Oh, yeah, the burglar who grew up in the countryside is able to milk the cow. Yeah. That's lucky. It is lucky. Though the carpet gets damaged at this point, doesn't it? It gets a dirty great hole yeah. in it from the cow. Yeah. Now, I, I, I wonder about the carpet, and we'll talk about this a bit more, about, yeah. about the sort of magical properties of mm-hmm. it. So well, when we get to the next couple of episodes, just, just remind me to say about that. So that's episode six. Yes. And we've just watched episode seven and eight in one okay. go just now, yes. haven't we? Yes. So episode seven... Mm-hmm. Here we are. Episode 7. The Hole in the Carpet. The children have returned from the desert island where they have left their friend the burglar married to cook. The carpet drops Robert and Jane unexpectedly in the strange house where they in turn find themselves suspected of being burglars. So this is back at the Reverend... This is Septimus Blenkinsop. Septimus Blenkinsop. It's a brilliant name, isn't it? It is a good name, yeah. (coughs) You could almost imagine them saying, uh, Thank you, Septimus. Theptimus, or something like that. Only because it's Nigel Lambert. Only because it's Nigel Lambert. Mm. But he's got two dreadful aunts, doesn't he? He has got two dreadful aunts. There are always nasty aunts in these things. Yeah. All of these people must have had sort of, except, you know, horrible relatives. (laughs) Get it out of your system by writing a book about them. Um, But yeah, the, 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 the carpet takes them to where they're going to encounter their uncle. Yes, because they ask they want for, some money. They ask to go somewhere where they can get some money so they can buy their mother, because their, their parents have been away. Yeah. Now basically, what we should have said as well is, before they get the cats, um, they 
They're supposed to be being met by somebody. Yeah. But Robert forgot to post the letter. Yeah. So they get a cab home. Then they can't get in the house because the cook and the maid have gone off somewhere. Yeah. So they basically blackmail the cook and the maid to not say anything about any of the stuff that's been going on so that they can, you know, it can all stay okay. But anyway, they want to buy a present for their mother who's coming back from the New Forest or wherever it is they were. I think yeah. it's the New Forest. So, yeah, they they ask the carpet to take them somewhere where they can get some money, but how they can explain it to their mother quite well that they got this money to buy a present. And they, they, they it drops them off in a street and then their uncle comes, their Uncle Reggie. So presumably the carpet then can foretell the future. Yes. Yeah. So when they fall through the hole, yeah. it's an extreme coincidence that it's the reverence house, yes. isn't it? So it's I think the carpet like arranged it. it there so that to, cause yeah. obviously this situation of him and his aunts gives him the courage to stand yeah. up to his aunts. Yeah. And oh god, to put them in their place. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. But the carpet is definitely sentient because you it can is. pin a note to it and yeah. it can and read, it. read it. Yeah. It can read any language. Yeah. Including baby. Including, what is it? It talks baby. Yeah. It talks baby. It talks baby. Like Matt Smith. Like Matt Smith. Yeah. Yeah. So episode eight. Mm. What? So episode eight starts with the fact the carpet's disappeared with the lamb on it because the lamb was wished to go somewhere. Well, that's true. The cliffhanger talk. to episode seven. The, 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 yeah, yeah. The, the lamb and the carpet have disappeared. Yes. So they try and work out I, what I, to do. Can I just read out the thing? Oh, okay. So episode eight, A Night at the Theatre. Anthea and Cyril arrive on the carpet in the nick of time to help Robert and Jane out of a difficult situation in Reverend Septimus's house. That's half of last episode. Father takes a box at the theatre and the phoenix joins the children with unexpected results. Mm. Okay? Yes. So, yeah, they're trying to work out what to do. How can they get the lamb back? Yeah. Because, you know, he could be anywhere in the world. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anthea goes up to see her mother to tell her what's happened and the lamb is in the sitting room because yeah. he's wished to be with his mother who's frankly quite negligent and doesn't <laughs> seem to care about the baby <laughs> so yeah so yeah and then they go to the theatre yes. and take the phoenix yes and the kids are given this box yes. and the father and the mother just swan off yeah, to, have to, go, dinner. to have dinner in a restaurant yeah. across the road yeah. No, they, they they say they're going to see a show, but yeah. really it seems to be they've, they've been taken to see the good old days, yes. haven't they? Yeah. And you can almost imagine, you can almost imagine um, the sort of master of ceremonies yes. b- being. Um, there is no master. Maybe it's a variety rather than a, right. a music hall. Because I think a music hall would so be it's rather not Leonard, too. It's not Leonard it's Sachs. Not Leonard Sachs. Well, there's no. There's no in-between bits, so I would imagine it's like some sort of variety show because I don't think the parents would take them to let them go to a musical. Yeah, it's it's, a bit, it'd be a bit common. The theatre manager is Seymour Green, yes. which is nice. Um, but then the phoenix gets overexcited, he does, doesn't he? Because he, he accidentally, he doesn't accidentally, he sets fire to the box. Yeah. So the fire chief in the form of Charles Pemberton turns up with yeah. all his firemen. Yeah. Um, the phoenix sort of... It brings the carpet. Yeah, because they to, can't get out because he set fire to it all. And that scene looked quite dangerous it to did me. It look quite dangerous. Because the kids are actually there they in are. a set which is on fire. Yeah, yeah with bits falling down. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm, presumably it was controlled. And yeah, but BBC, health and safety nightmare And the these BBC days. fireman is standing just off set with, with his fire extinguisher ready to... Again, Gary, if you're listening, let us know. Yeah. But the phoenix says he's able to sort of put it all right by making yeah. it unhappen. Yes. Which basically involves him going there mm. and 
um, they play the film of the fire backwards, yeah. and then he regresses into an egg, doesn't yes. he? Yeah, because he's tired. Yeah, mm. and then father sort of brings the egg home. Yeah, he says, "Is this yours?" Mm. <laughs> I love the way he doesn't question it. No. Yeah, no. and uh, they wrap the egg <coughs> up in the carpet, mm-hmm. and off the carpet sails off yes. into the phoenix into the has, stars. Has written a note, isn't he? Yeah, so in Persian. They, in Persian, so they pin the note to the carpet, tie the carpet up. And the, the carpet takes the phoenix mm. egg off. But by this point, the carpet is really, really raggedy. Is, and yeah. in my head, it's because they've used up all its magic. Yeah. So it's not just wet general wear and tear. Yeah. It's overuse of all the wishes. Okay, yeah. So what, I think if you wrap the carpet and the egg up, mm. the carpet sort of dematerializes, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Because when it lands in a house, yeah. it fades in. Yeah. So it must occupy a different dimension mm-hmm. when it travels. Yeah. It doesn't just like fly in through the window. No, no. It actually comes through the ceiling. Through the ceiling, yes. Um, so I assume that the carpet will regenerate over time mm-hmm. so that the next people that find people that find the carpet it's all back to normal yes. again hopefully it will yeah. treat it a little bit better and but... it'll get some owners that actually look after yeah, it and not yeah. put cows on it and cats and, <laughs> and, and, and tables but yeah, it's a very imaginative show isn't it is it, it is, it I... is. and it's uh, the special the special effects as they are yeah um it's mostly done through cso but there's some nice sort of overlays and it does actually yeah. remind me a bit of um the Box of Delights, yeah. the way it's done with the sort of animation yeah. that they use. And I quite like the Phoenix model. Some people yeah. say it's a bit sort of yeah. inanimate. Yeah. But I think that, certainly as a kid, I remember not having a problem no. with it. And I think they get away with it. I think it moves enough and its eyes yeah. roll and things so that, um, well, its eyes move, so that it gives it enough of a suggestion of life yeah. for you to get away with it and it does actually because you said that somebody said that it Mark, looks yeah Mark Braxton said, said it looks like the um, owl thing the owl from Clash of the Titans Clash of the Titans which came after this yeah so I wonder if somebody was influenced influenced by it yes mm. but I, I I enjoyed it we, yeah. we only did sort of one episode every now and then we didn't did we? yeah I think doing more than one episode I mean, we did do two to finish it off today yeah because um, we wanted to do the article but yeah I think probably doing too many episodes would be too much yeah but, but I certainly sort of uh, as a kid I, re- I remember all these sort of Edwardian fantasy things because mm-hmm. there are quite a few of them that, that, yeah. that's that's the thing and I know you said you sort of maybe you wouldn't have identified with the kids no I don't it? think I would have not no. at that particular time because the world that I lived in was very different from mm. that world. But I didn't really have a problem with it. Although it's quite amusing to see them in their like best suits, isn't yes, it? They they the wear all their suits. They they them. wear all their like sort of jackets and yes. Gary Russell's got some amazing big collars he in has. episode eight, yeah. haven't they? They're yeah. big white white things. Yes. But, but that is the fashion of the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, I, I, it's available from Simply Media on it DVD. Is. It's only recently come out, yes, hasn't it? Yes, in the so, last six weeks or so. Yeah. So. so, but yeah, I I, I enjoyed it. So but yeah, it's just um, you sort of get to like the children more, yeah. I suppose. But they are a bit thoughtless and a bit. But do of... you have to cut them some slack by having like parents? Is it? Is it? Well, the parents obviously do care because when they found out the theatre was on fire, they yeah. ran to the theatre immediately. They yeah. finished their coffee. Um, but is that but that yeah. whole thing of just like abandoning them and just sort of swanning off? Yeah. It, you wouldn't do that, you know? No, no, well, you're not necessarily these days, no. Yeah. But uh, it was a whole different world. Yeah. 
Well, there you go. Phoenix and the Carpet. Yes. Eight episodes of mm-hmm. fantasy fun and a bit yeah. of Clive Doig. A bit of Clive Doig. Into the bargain. Yes. Okay. All right. And that is pretty much the end of this episode. It is. So yes. we'll say uh, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back again soon with, yes. with the next one. Yes. So see you all soon then. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 36 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Tim Worthington, Martin Holmes, Paul Chandler, Nick Goodman and Andy Ching. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Public Eye, Divide and Conquer was by Roger Marshall. And the producer was Kim Mills. Security, no liability, all kinds of property insured against fire, terms most favorable, expenses reasonable, moderate rates for annual insurance. Yes, 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 yes. Th- that is enough.